Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 20. And uh, this evening's message is based upon uh, three brief verses here, verses 9 through 11. So we'll read those verses, and then uh, we'll have a brief uh, word of prayer. So let's uh, look at Proverbs chapter 20, and uh, we'll read verses 9 through 11. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word, for it is food uh, unto us, we who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray, Lord, that above all else, that we would desire to feast upon Christ, who is the manna from heaven, that you would feed us, that by the power of your spirit, you would make it uh, nourishing for us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give unto us uh, greater degrees and heights of faith, and that in so doing, you would further conform us to the image of your son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. This week has certainly uh, been one where a number of high-profile court cases have been in the press, not only this week, but the week last. And you can imagine that uh, as the defendants in the various cases that have appeared in the news uh, awaited the verdict, that they undoubtedly waited with bated breath. Given the severity and the gravity of, our, of the crimes, we can say that were we to find ourselves in similar circumstances where we stand before a judge and jury waiting to hear the verdict, that we ourselves would undoubtedly be gripped by fear and uncertainty because we would want to know what the outcome of the verdict would be and we would for sure hope that that verdict would be favorable to us. But who of us, if we were to stand before judge and jury, knowing that we were guilty of a serious crime, knowing that the judge who had irrefutable evidence against us would think that we could somehow cheat the system, that we could somehow avoid that guilty verdict? I think these are just some of the themes that run through the three verses that we find before us. And in particular, what Solomon expounds upon is the idea of standing before the judge, standing before the king, and not just simply standing before the king awaiting the verdict, but standing before the king knowing full well what the verdict should be, that is, a a guilty verdict. And all the same, while Solomon does ruminate upon these types of ideas here, standing before the throne of God, the throne of judgment, He also, I think, invariably presses us to look to the only source of hope that we can find when we stand before the throne of God, and that is to look to the gospel of grace. And so what we want to do this evening is we want to reflect upon the themes that Solomon has set before us first by looking at what it means to stand before the divine bar, to stand before the judgment seat. Secondly, why it's terrifying to stand before the judgment seat. In other words, because we stand before our all-knowing God and that there is nowhere that we can flee, no amount of verbal fencing, no amount of excuses, uh, no amount of subterfuge that we can possibly do in order to 
keep God from pronouncing that verdict against us. And then third and finally, ultimately seeing how Solomon here points to Christ, who is uh, ultimately our only hope in the face of the guilty verdict that undoubtedly hangs over us all. So let's uh, think about this as Solomon brings us before the throne of judgment. He brings us before the bar. As we read Solomon's Proverbs, I think we might get the impression that he comes to us as that unimpeachable king, as the one who is holy, he's righteous, he's just, and uh, perhaps at least in the eyes of his sons and his daughters as he passed on to them his wisdom, he might have given them the impression that he made no mistakes. He is, of course, after all, one of Israel's greatest kings. He was given the responsibility of building the the temple, God's earthly dwelling place. And here, as he counsels his sons and daughters, he passes on to them wisdom. And especially in light of the previous verse, in chapter 20, verse 8, we might think that he sits unharmed upon a perch of holiness. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Is he not the king who winnows all of the evil out of his kingdom with his all-seeing and all-knowing eyes? On the other hand, I think verse 9, the first verse in our passage this evening, reveals more about Solomon's character when he says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? As a sinner saved by grace, Solomon was well aware that it was the Messiah who was going to be the king who would winnow all of the evil out of his kingdom. And so Solomon echoes a sentiment, I think, that his father uh, undoubtedly echoed and perhaps even passed on to Solomon, and it comes to us from Psalm 143, verse 2, "'Enter not into judgment with your servant.'" For no one living is righteous before you. I think both Solomon and David were acutely aware of how sinful they truly were. So that when Solomon says there in verse 8 that the king sits upon the throne of judgment and winnows all evil with his eyes, he knew that yes, he had to be a righteous king, but that ultimately it was only the Messiah himself that could fulfill this particular bill of goods. Solomon and David both knew the truth of God's holiness and then conversely their own sinfulness. They were both aware essentially of what every godly Christian has known as they stand before the throne of judgment, as they stand in the very presence of God. Think, for example, of Job, who had perhaps some of the best grounds to be able to utter complaints against God, Yet, when God finally confronted him out of the whirlwind and God began to say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I told the waters to stop and they stopped? Where are you when I look upon the great storehouses of hail in the heavens? Are you there when the calf uh, comes forth and is, is, is birthed? And in the sight of all of the wonders of the creation, as Job began to become, in, you know, to become uh, faced with God's wisdom, his might, his holiness, Job says in chapter 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. 
Job recognized that in the presence of God, he had no grounds for complaint. He had no room for judgment. He had no room for criticizing the Almighty. Think, for example, of Isaiah as he found himself unexpectedly in the presence of the Lord when he went to the temple for what he thought was an ordinary day of worship. And yet, as, as the Lord revealed himself and unfurled his glory, where he merely caught a glimpse of the hem of his garment, he recognized all of a sudden his profound sinfulness. I suspect that by any stretch of measurement, Isaiah was a holy man, especially perhaps even compared to us, one of God's chosen prophets. And yet he said, woe unto me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He trembled in the presence of the Lord because he immediately recognized that he was in the presence of the thrice holy God, and he himself was utterly sinful. The Apostle Peter is no exception to this observation. When Peter and the other disciples had spent all night fishing and they were unable to catch anything and Jesus stood upon the shore and he called out to them early on that morning, he said, why don't you try from the other side? And so I think Peter, out of just simply, okay, fine, I'll do what the teacher says, but uh, if you don't don't understand here, Lord, uh, I happen to know what I'm doing, but okay, I'll throw it out on the other side, and all of a sudden they've got such a catch that they can barely haul it in. And when he finally stood in the presence of Christ, he says uh, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He recognized that he was sinful, that Christ was holy. We can make similar observations about the Apostle Paul. If there was anybody in Paul's day that was confident, at least in his own standing in the presence of God, before he encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, it was the Apostle Paul. What does he say in Philippians 3, 4? For if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet once he encountered the resurrected Christ, as he stood in the presence of God in the flesh, Paul instead would change his tune significantly when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What a change. What a change where he goes from saying under the law being blameless to now saying once he has been in the presence of the resurrected Christ that he is the chief of sinners. All of these saints knew that all of their good works were nothing but filthy rags in the presence of our thrice holy God. John Newton was a man who knew the depths of his own sin when he finally came face to face, so to speak, with our holy God. He was a man who was guilty of many sins. 
He, he testifies in his own biography uh, that he was drunk, that he was foul-mouthed, that he was disrespectful to authority, that he plotted murder, that he was the captain of a slave ship, that he was a slave trader, as well as other sins that I probably should not mention from the pulpit. And yet he also learned that God's grace and Christ far outweighed the burden and the guilt of his shame and sin. And of course, he penned those now famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is the truth that Solomon knew. This is the truth that he was passing on to his sons when he says, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Who can stand in the presence of God and say, I am holy. I am righteous. I am pure, clean of all of my sin. Solomon knew that the only way that he could ever say that was if he took shelter in the hope of the promise of the Messiah, the gospel. And so this brings us to our second point, which is taking a look as to how God knows. In other words, why it is that Solomon would say that we can't stand in the presence of God and somehow think that our own, sin, our own sinfulness will go unnoticed, or somehow think that we ourselves can fulfill the law to a sufficient degree that God will say, okay, you pass the test. The simple matter of the fact is, is that Solomon, along with every other godly saint, knows that God knows all and sees all. Solomon characterizes God all, God's all-knowing and all-seeing eyes in terms of unequal weights and measures. He says in verse 9, or sorry, uh, he says in uh, verse 10, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, how does this reveal God's omniscience? Let alone the all-seeing eye of God as he sits upon the throne of judgment and as we enter before his presence. Well, he writes here of unequal weights and measures. If a merchant was selling grain, for example, if you were selling grain and you wanted to sell a pound of grain, but you wanted to ensure that you would stay ahead of your customer. You would put a weight in the scale that said one pound, but in reality, it wasn't one pound. It would only be three quarters of a pound, but it was labeled one pound so that the person that was buying the grain from you would say, I'm getting a pound worth of grain, when in reality, they'd only be getting three quarters of the pound while you were charging them full price. But then on the other side of, of the table, if you were purchasing, then you would perhaps have a weight that said one pound, when in reality it was one and a quarter pound, so that you're getting a 25% bonus every time that you bought a pound of grain. This means that your customers who are purchasing from you would pay more, they would pay 25% more. You would pay 25% less. Unequal weights and measures. Now, if you did this kind of business, you would assume that basically you alone would only be the person who knew 
what the true value of those weights were. You would hide it from your customers. You would hide it from other vendors so that they would not know that you were cheating them, that you were stealing from them by using these unequal weights and measures. Such thievery might have been out of the sight of human beings, but it wasn't out of the sight of God. Such thievery was an abomination to the Lord because what he expected of his people was honesty. You know, somebody once described to me the nature of integrity, and this definition has always stuck with me ever since I heard it probably maybe almost 25, 30 years ago, which is integrity is who you are when no one is watching. Because at the end of the day, even if nobody else is watching, God is watching. He knows and he sees. You see, God redeemed his people unto holiness and virtue, not unto vice and wickedness. And so to give us an idea that God here calls unequal weights and measures an abomination, we should see what other sins God considers to be an abomination. It might surprise us, but homosexuality, according to Leviticus 18.22, is an abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Idolatry is an abomination. Deuteronomy 7.25, the carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So here, sins that we might think are undoubtedly an abomination, we might not necessarily put into the same category as unequal weights and measures, and yet Solomon does. God puts them in these same categories. You know, so often it's the case that we think, well, certain sins aren't so bad. I mean, what's the big deal? So what if I go ahead and I just give myself a little bit of a discount here on on what I'm purchasing? And this is something that when I was in college, I I ran into a lot. I used to work retail security for a major retailer. And I remember one time getting information about uh, an employee who was giving people discounts, unauthorized discounts, in order to make his sale quota. You couldn't afford the jacket? Well, let me take a little bit off that price. I make a sale. You get a free discount or at least an unauthorized discount. Turns out that this particular person had been doing this for some 15 years, so it amounted to something like thirty dollars to $40,000 in unauthorized discounts. It's thievery. It's stealing. Yet why is this form of theft such an abomination to the Lord? Well, I think part of the answer lies in the fact that it is a failure to acknowledge that we live in the presence of God. That we, we don't recognize that while our fellow human beings don't see, God does see. It's an attempt, moreover, to deceive our fellow image bearers. And in Israel's case, a fellow member of the covenant. And it's a failure to recognize that God knows all and sees all. It was uh, Wilhelmus Abraco, who was a 17th century Dutch Reformed theologian, who said this, that what is, what is so terrible about conducting ourselves in such a manner as we see described here is that it says that we value and we revere the presence of our fellow human being more than we do the presence of God. Because he says, 
you're more careful about your conduct in the presence of others, you want to hide it from them, and you fail to account for the fact that you still can't hide it from God. You think that their presence is more important than the very presence of God, who is always there. Moreover, according to the Old Testament, it is God himself who set Israel's weights and measures. Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36, you shall do no wrong in judgment in weights, sorry, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just epa, a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. The Lord is essentially saying, I've set the weights. I've redeemed you, not unto thievery, not unto deception, but unto holiness, to reflect my holy character. This is why I think it was ultimately such an abomination to the Lord. Now, if false weights and measures were an abomination to the Lord, what do we think about when we put our lives in the scale? Because I think that Solomon here is not just talking about false weights and measures. I think there's something more here. In other words, the false weights and measures are certainly something that the Israelites were supposed to conduct in integrity. They were not supposed to use false weights and measures. But at the same time, if somebody was using false weights and measures, it was ultimately a reflection of their character, of who they were. They were placing their own life into the weights, into the scales, to see what can I pull off, what can I deceive my neighbor of. What happens when we place our lives in the scale of holiness and righteousness? Sometimes do we try to make more of what we have done with our so-called good works? You know, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 4, verse 2? For if Abraham was justified works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, sometimes we try to make more of the good things that we do than we ought. Or we inflate them with worth because we think, well, I did this thing, so everybody should know about it. And yet, what does Jesus say? Some of those frightening words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When we place our lives in the scale and we put the righteousness of the law on one side and our good works on the other, do we think that our good works measure up? What is frightening about what Jesus says here in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is he does not discount the good things that they have done, but rather he does say, you workers of lawlessness. Because at the end of the day, they did not come from a heart that was looking to Christ by faith alone, received by God's grace alone. They did not look to Christ for salvation, but rather they were looking to themselves. So when we place our, our, our lives in the scale, do we attribute more 
to our good works than we ought. On the flip side of the coin, in terms of false weights and measures, do we make less of the sins that we have committed? Do we count our sin as too light a thing? It's no big deal. It's just a small thing. You know, one of the things, one of the ways that uh, I learned about stealing, and I learned this because I had to learn about all of the ways that you could steal from the company so that I could uh, be a part of the team that kept people from stealing, whether it was employees or whether it was people outside the store. And one of the ways was, you, you know, you would take people and make sure that if they if they walked into the department and they had a pen, you had to make sure what they were doing with that pen. You had to keep an eye on them. Why? Because they could take a red pen and scratch through the price and then write, you know, 25% discount or just discounted. And people might think, well, what's the big deal? I'm just writing. I'm just writing here. I'm just just scratching off a price, putting on a lower price. That's okay. I mean, this is a multi-million dollar company. What's just a few dollars off the bottom line? Do we make less of the sins that we have committed? You know, from the famous hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. If the least of our sins was sufficient enough to take Christ to the cross... And to render the the costly sacrifice that he gave in order to redeem us from our sins, both small and great. Then if we place our lives in the scales and we think that somehow we can make less of our sins and make light of them, then we're failing to see the hope. The hope that Solomon, David, Isaiah, Job, Peter, and Paul all knew. They recognized the weight of their sin, and they knew that the only hope they had was in Christ Jesus. That's it. So this is why Solomon could say here, as he does, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from all my sin. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. There is no hope unless you look to Christ, which brings us to our third and final point. Once again, think about the setting of Solomon's Proverbs. He's passing on wisdom to his sons. He's telling them of their need for Christ, ultimately, their need for wisdom. And so thus, he's living out his counsel, but he's also impressing upon his sons their need to pass on the message of truth that they are receiving unto their children. He says in verse 11, even a child makes himself known by his acts by whether his conduct is pure and upright. In other words, Solomon says here that you can see the conduct of a child and recognize whether or not that child understands the gospel. Even at the youngest of ages, they begin to reveal their character. The truth that Solomon captures here appears in a poem by uh, 17th and 18th century, or 18th and 19th century poet William Wordsworth, when he writes in his poem, My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began, so is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man. 
and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. What Wordsworth is saying here is he's ultimately saying is that the joys that he beheld as a child are the same joys that he carries with him as an old man. And so thus he says, the child is the father of the man. As the child acts, those are the same habits that he will carry with him into his adult life. That is how he's saying the child is the father of the man. If you're lazy as a child, chances are you might be lazy as an adult. If you're wicked as a child, chances are you might carry that wickedness into your adult life. And so this is why Solomon says, even a child makes himself known by his acts. How the child acts reveals who he is. If we turn back the pages of Holy Writ, and we looked at somebody like Samuel as a child, the prophet, what might we conclude later about the man? We read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. As Samuel was a child, he let none of the Lord's words fall to the ground. He gathered each and every one of them up, and he treasured them. We can ask the same question of Timothy. Paul's young colleague, where Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So that what Solomon says here is that even the child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. And notice here how he begins there in verse 9, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. Now verse 11, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. In other words, Solomon's focus here is asking yourself, what is my conduct life, especially as I stand before the throne of God? And who is my only source of hope in the presence of God. And even from the youngest of years, you can begin to point the child to the only hope that they have in this world, which is Jesus Christ, the only source of holiness, the only source of the child's righteousness, the only source of a child's purity, so much so that the child will reveal whether or not he knows these things. He will reveal what type of person that he is. And that God does indeed promise his blessings to a thousand generations, to those who love him. But he fulfills those promises through redeemed sinners who know who they are and know who God is. Through those who pass on the truth of the gospel to future generations so that they too can sing of God's amazing grace. And so I think what, what Solomon's point here is saying is, if I could boil it down to this, he's saying, son... None of us can stand as pure and righteous in the presence of God. Not any one of us. The only hope we have comes through the Messiah. And if I can impart anything to you in this life, it's that one truth that I want to impart to you. The most important truth, which is the hope of the gospel in Christ. 
It's like I can remember when my when my oldest was uh, learning how to read and and he was having trouble. And uh, he didn't want to continue reading. And I said, son, do you know why you need to read? I said, yeah, you know, you, you can learn all kinds of things. You can learn about science. You can learn about history. You can learn about great literature. And those are tremendous blessings indeed. But I want you to read. I want your sister to read. I, I want your brother to read. Because... If you can't read, then you're not going to be able to read the most important book that you'll ever pick up in your entire life, and that's God's Word. I want you to be able to read this book. I want you to be able to soak in its promises. I want you to be able to memorize this this Word. I want you to be able to read of the hope of the gospel that comes to us through Christ. That's what I want you to be able to do. I want you to be able to do this, and the only way you can do this is if you read. Are we therefore seeking to point our, 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 our children, whatever their age, this is not just about, you know, small children, this is about children of any age. Are we seeking to point our children to Christ at every turn and through every means, through our speech, through our prayer, through example? You know, I can't help but think that what Solomon is doing here is he's saying, son, I'm a sinner in need of salvation as much as you are. And he's seeing, I think, in a sense, we can see Solomon's humility, at least at this point. We know that Solomon went off the rails later on. But at least at this point in his life, he's saying, son, I'm a sinner who needs salvation as much as you. And let me show you the only place that you can get it. Because one day you will have to stand before the throne of God and you will have to give an account for every single thing that you say, every idle word, every action, every thought, every deed. Let me give to you the hope, the only hope that you have, which is Jesus Christ. Standing before the divine bar of judgment is a sobering truth. But at the same time, God has promised those who believe in Christ can receive the forgiveness of their sins. Again, from the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost. Christ's the rock of our salvation, his the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful. Indeed, who of us can stand in your presence and say that we are pure of sin? Who of us can say that we are righteous? In and of ourselves, O Lord, we are sinful. We are wicked. We are by nature children of wrath. And yet, O Lord, you have promised and given unto us hope through Jesus Christ, Solomon's greater son and even greater Lord. We pray and ask, O Lord, that as Solomon pointed his sons to Christ, so too we pray that through your word you would continue to point us to your son that you would help us to remember as all of your great saints of old did, as Peter and Paul and Job and Isaiah, that they were sinners, that they were in desperate need of your grace, and that the only source of hope comes from Christ and his gospel. Help us to know, O Lord, just as you cleansed the man whose lips were unclean with the coal from the altar, And made Isaiah clean, pure from sin, so too, O Lord, that you have touched our lips and indeed our lives 
with the coal from the altar of heaven, the altar upon which Christ offered himself for us. We pray, Lord, that we would seek no other shelter, no other remedy, no other embassy of peace, save but in the holiness and righteousness of Christ. And that we would seek to pass on the life-giving source of this hope unto future generations. That we would not grow tired or weary of singing the praises of Christ. That we would grow neither tired nor weary of telling our children of the wonderful blessings of the gospel of Christ. That we would never, never grow tired or weary of basking in the glory of the, the, the forgiveness of our sins that comes only through Jesus. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.